Good morning, my name is Nick Swan, the Associate Pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all those who are joining us online as well. I just have one brief announcement before we hop into our sermon this morning. Uh, many of you know we use Simple Church as the database that we've had at the church for a number of years, and we recently switched that over to something called Breeze. And with that switchover will be a switchover of your ability to get access to the online directory. So keep an eye out for an email from Allie. She's going to send a, an email instructions to you about how to get access to the online directory, either via your phone or online uh, via our web browser. Uh, and if you have any questions about that, you can ask Allie. We're going to do this for about a month of transition, and then we're going to discontinue Simple Church. So if you try and access Simple Church in a month and can't get access, that is why. All right, the title of our message this morning is Resting in Jesus, resting in Jesus. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Father, thank you that you are the God of rest, that you made all of creation in six days, and on the seventh day you rested, and you now invite your people to rest in you. And Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, that we would come to you and find the rest that you offer. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Joe Robinson was the principal oboe of the New York Philharmonic from 1978 to 2005. And in 1994, when I was a sophomore in high school, Joe Robinson came to my hometown to give a master class at Ball State University. And I was a big oboe fish in a very small musical pond in Muncie, Indiana. And so I was invited by the professor at Ball State to go and play for Mr. Robinson at this master class. And I think it's fair to say going into this master class, I was both arrogant and naive, which it turns out is a nasty combination. I had a high view of my own playing, and I had little to no idea who Joe Robinson was, what the New York Philharmonic was, and just how important this guy was in the oboe world. So I showed up. I had this crummy student oboe. I had an even crummier student reed, so oboe players make their own reeds, and I had just as a sophomore learned how to make my own reeds, and it was a terrible reed. And then I proceeded to stand up in front of all these local professionals and professors and college students and play like absolute garbage. I sounded awful. It was terrible. So here's a little insider information for a musical master class. If you ever go to a master class, uh, you always know how bad someone is in that master class by observing the ratio between the student playing and the teacher teaching. If the student is good, they will let you play 75% of the time and they'll comment upon that. But if you are terrible, no one in that room wants to hear you and especially that teacher doesn't want to hear you. So the ratio of teacher talking to student playing flip-flops. In my case, it was about 10% me playing and about 90% Mr. Robinson talking. It was, it was brutal. And the kicker was when he ran out of words, he still had some time to fill, and he certainly did not want to hear me play anything. So he said, hey, can I have a look at your read? Let me see if I can fix this. So he takes my read from me, obviously meaning I can no longer play, and he begins to scrape on it to see if he can make something out of this thing. He eventually gives up, takes my read, smashes it on the top of the piano, hands it back to me. I get some gentle golf claps. <laughs> I sit down, and that was it. That was my first experience playing for Joe Robinson. It was a rough musical outing for a young Nick Swan. Now, in our passage this morning, 
Jesus is going to confront some arrogance and some naivety of the crowds and the Pharisees. So despite Jesus being this authoritative teacher who has done all of these miracles, both the crowds and the Pharisees, they naively and arrogantly assume that they know better than Jesus. And so they, they begin, Jesus performs all these miracles. And so what do they say in the context? Can you do another miracle for us? Can you do a sign to prove who you are, even after all the miracles he's done? And then in this context, they, they question John the Baptist, that he lived with, in deprivation in the desert, and they said he had a demon. Well, then Jesus comes, and he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they call him a drunkard. Then Jesus, right before our passage, he pronounces all of this judgment upon them, telling them it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is going to be for you. And instead of being humbled by this, they then proceed in the passage immediately following ours to question his disciples' observance of the Sabbath and then to decide that they want to kill him because he had the audacity of healing someone compassionately on the Sabbath. The crowds and the Pharisees, they're full of themselves and they're naive. They have no idea that the Lord of the Sabbath is standing before them, that someone greater than the temple is standing before them. They had no idea who they were dealing with. And this combination of naivety and arrogance was a nasty combination. So in our passage, Jesus rebukes them. He tells them that they need to humble themselves like a child in order to enter the kingdom of God. And that he alone is Lord of that kingdom. And if they want true rest, real rest, they must humble themselves before him and come to him. Our main point for this morning is this. Jesus gives true and lasting rest to those who humbly come to him. True and lasting rest to those who humbly come to him. Our first point this morning is this, the humility of a child, the humility of a child. Look with me again at verses 25, 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So in the face of their arrogance and their Jesus prays for them this prayer of thanksgiving, but it's an odd prayer of thanksgiving. Usually we're thanking God for doing something good. But in this case, he's thanking God for actually hiding the kingdom of God from these people. He's thanking him that the Father has not chosen to reveal himself to those who think they are wise and understanding in their own eyes. And it's a prayer that's meant to both correct and instruct So in this prayer, which he's declared before a listening audience, so everyone can hear what he's praying, he's correcting their arrogance. The Lord of heaven and earth has hidden the kingdom from those who think that they are wise and understanding. In other words, if you think you're wise and understanding, your arrogance is actually blinding you from the very thing that you think you know and understand. And it's actually the little children, those who have no idea how unwise they actually are, who are humble... Those who acknowledge their need, these are the ones whom the Father will reveal himself to. This prayer is a call to childlike humility. It's a prayer that echoes Mark 10, 15, where Jesus has been welcoming all of these children to him and the disciples are rebuking him. And what does he say? Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now we live in a name-dropping culture, not just the North Shore, but in the United States. 
a resume citing culture. Have you ever noticed how often when we refer referring to someone that we know, we don't talk about a character attribute we, attribute, we often begin to quote their resume. He went to such and such a school, or she's now working for such and such a company, or they're really successful, or this person's on this board, or they teach here, or they've done this, or they've done that. Have you noticed so often we refer to people by their resume? Obviously, there's nothing wrong with being successful, but I sometimes wonder if our words betray too much trust in our own wisdom and our own understanding. Our words betray that on occasion, our achievements and the achievements of those around us, that they, they may give us a false sense of our own self-importance. Put another way, if we were having a conversation with Jesus, how much do you think he would care about where we went to school, who we know, what job we have, how successful we are, where we live? I have a feeling that Jesus would care about these things far less than you and I care about these things. Because what Jesus values, it's not a worldly standard of power and education and connections. What Jesus values is humility, childlike humility. For instance, look at Jesus' life, how he actually lived. On occasion, Jesus made his way to the big city of Jerusalem, but for the most part, he spent almost the entirety of his life and his ministry life living in obscurity in the backwaters of Israel. And when, he came, when it came time for him to pick disciples, who did he pick? He wasn't picking the cream of the crop, the upper echelon of religious and political life. He chose fishermen and tax collectors, the social and the religious and the political outsiders that surrounded him. Paul says it this way when he speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In a world that values big names and impressive resumes, what Jesus is looking for is humility, childlike humility, humility that thinks not of ourselves but of God, not much of ourselves but much of God. What Jesus is calling us to is to turn from a worldly definition of wisdom and understanding and to embrace a childlike trust in him. And this childlike trust, which is a prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God, Jesus said it is according to his, the Father's gracious will in verse 26. Grace is often defined as God's unmerited favor. God welcomes those into his kingdom, not be, he welcomes us into his kingdom, not because of what we bring, not because of what we merit, not because of what we have done. There's nothing on our resume that says this makes you worthy of entering the kingdom of God. In fact, he welcomes us in spite of our demerit. We do not deserve to be there. We've lived in sinful rebellion against him. We're often arrogant in our refusal to submit to him. Jesus graciously welcomes children, those who turn from trusting in themselves to trusting in the gracious offer of salvation. Jesus ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors. In other words, he ate with the spiritually needy and broken. 
He welcomed little children, those who could offer nothing to him. Jesus, Jesus welcomes not the wise, not the understanding, but the humble into his kingdom. So here's a question for us to consider. How much do you trust in your wisdom and in your understanding? How much importance do you place on who you know, where you went to school, what degree you have, what letters are after your name? How much importance do you place upon your success and what that says about you and what others think of you? Is what Jesus values in you and others, is that as important to you as what you value in you and others? Are you willing this morning to turn to say, you know what, I might be rich in worldly wisdom and understanding, but the only thing that truly matters is childlike humility before Christ. Our first point is humility of a child. And our second point is this humility before Jesus. Humility before Jesus. Let's look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In our opening verses, we learn that we must embrace childlike humility in order to enter the kingdom of God. In this verse, we learn that this childlike humility, it begins and ends with humility before Christ. And Jesus, he makes four significant claims in this verse. He says he has all authority over all things. That he alone as God's son really knows God the Father... That we can't know God except through knowing the Son, number three. And we can't know God unless Jesus chooses to reveal him to us. To use the imagery of John 10, Jesus is the door. All who approach the Father have to come through him. And he alone holds the keys of opening that door to give access to the Father. Or to use a, a, a more everyday example, which always falls short of describing the relationship between the son and the father. Picture uh, the chief of staff of a president who knows everything about what that president needs and wants. And you have to go through that chief of staff if you want access to the president. Jesus functions to give access to the father and he alone makes a decision about who has access to the father. The claims that Jesus makes for himself in this verse, they're often hard for us to embrace because this verse points to the exclusivity of Christ all things have been given into his hand no one knows the father except Jesus and the only way we can know the father is if the son chooses to reveal him to us these cl these claims they deal a crushing blow to the illusion that we often have of absolute autonomy this verse does away with humanity's delusion that we are in control, that all things are knowable to us, and that we are the masters of our own destiny. We don't have a final say in the world. Jesus has all authority. God is above us so, so much so that he only knows himself within himself. Only the Father truly knows the Son, and only the Son truly knows the Father. And the Father has revealed to us, excuse me, the Father is revealed to us by the Son, and it's only revealed to those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Even knowing God, we don't choose, we don't have the ability to know God apart from the Son granting us access. 
In other words, we deal with God on his terms. God doesn't deal with us on our terms. Responding to this reality, it requires humility. It requires us to acknowledge that God is truly God, that he is the creator and that we are created, that he's sovereign over all things, including us and our lives, that he reveals himself to us as he sees fit. We deal with him on his terms because he is God and we are not. As humbling as it is for us to embrace this reality, it's through this humility, through humbly embracing this truth, that we will actually find rest for our souls. And that brings me to our final point, which is this. Rest for the humble. Look with me again at our passage, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's the question, the question that I have. What does childlike humility and humility before Jesus have to do with rest? What's the connection? And here's what I believe the connection is. When we humble ourselves with a childlike humility before Jesus, it frees us from the burdens of our pride, our sin, and our guilt. This humility, it lifts those burdens and it ultimately gives us rest. Here's why. Being arrogant is hard work. You ever noticed how hard it is to be proud? All the striving, all the comparison, all the self-righteousness and judgment, it's tough work. It's hard work being arrogant. All this striving, comparison, self-righteousness, and judgment, they, they weigh us down. They preoccupy us. They're front of mind constantly. And we think that all of this striving, all of this jockeying for position, that it will one day give us rest, and yet it ne never does. So we just hop right back on the pride treadmill. It only leads to more striving, more comparison, more self-righteousness, and more judgment of others. And Jesus calls us to step away from the weight and the burden of our own arrogance to humble ourselves and to relieve ourselves of the burden of our own pride and arrogance. And you know what else is heavy? Our sin. Carrying around our guilt and shame is heavy. Have you ever felt burdened by your guilt and your shame and your failings? Many of us work so hard to, to clean ourselves up, to keep up this facade of being together. We exhaust ourselves seeking to make ourselves presentable to God and to the world, to be the type of person that we think that God will love and accept and forgive. But God's love and his forgiveness and his acceptance, they don't come through obedience to the law, which only heaps more guilt and more shame. If we try and measure up, the only thing we're going to feel is our failures again and again and again. The only thing that will actually free us from our striving. The only thing that will make us good enough to be accepted before God is to acknowledge that we are not acceptable and to receive Christ who is. It's in Christ that we will find rest. And who here doesn't long for rest? I think we all do, like a real rest. Not just sleep, not just freedom from fatigue, but rest for our souls. 
Jesus tells us that the rest that we long for, it's only going to come when we have right relationship with him. All of us have been likely in a broken or a wrong relationship. Is there anything less restful than a relationship that is the wrong relationship or a broken relationship? Picture an argument with your spouse. How restful is that to live in tension in your own home? Or to be living in tension with a parent or with a child or with a co-worker? Broken relationships are one of the most least, re- least, str- or least restful things. Most stressful, least restful things that we can possibly have in our lives. But a right relationship, it brings us rest. Jesus tells us that right relationship with him will bring rest because we will, what we so deeply desire and what we so strive for in this life, he will freely give to us. But if we want this rest, we have to embrace humility. In doing so, it cuts against the grain of all that we know. By default, we are do, 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 do people. We just do. We try and fix. We try and work it out. And what humility calls us to do is to stop and to release the burden to God himself that he might give us rest. To cast our cares upon him. To allow him to take the yoke of our pride and our sin and our shame off of us. That we might lay it before him trusting that he alone can finally Give us rest. Now, although Jesus offers rest when we're proud and sinful, the Christian life isn't a yokeless existence. Jesus takes the yoke of pride, sin, and shame from us, but he gives us a new yoke. Look with me at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We exchange the yoke of pride and guilt for another yoke, the yoke of Christ. It's a yoke of humility and obedience. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, and the yoke of rest that Jesus offers is one of forgiveness and wholehearted obedience to God. Now, before I get too far down the road here, do you all know what a yoke is? Not a yolk, like the thing in the middle of an egg, but a yoke. It is an instrument of work. It's a wooden frame that's placed upon the shoulders that allows you to evenly distribute the weight of what you're trying to pull or to carry. More often, we we see this sometimes with human beings, but we see this much more with animals. Two animals yoked together that are then hooked up to something which they are pulling. It's intended to make work easier. A modern equivalent of this might be straps that movers use to move you. Have you noticed this? This is something that I just, they strap, they hook in. So recently, I was with my brother-in-law trying to lift this couch to move it into my in-law's house. And so they had these straps. My mother-in-law like, use these straps. They're really helpful. Me being the typical arrogant man said, we can just lift this. Like, how hard is it? So we try and lift it. It was exceedingly heavy. It was one of these mechanical couches that we had to move from the van. So I gave in. I put the straps over my shoulder, threw it underneath. My brother-in-law was on the other. And sure enough, the two of us together, putting the weight on our shoulders evenly, not lifting with our backs, but with our legs, we were easily able to lift up and carry this couch. That's what a yoke does. It evenly distributes, making the weight of something far easier. 
In a similar way, following Jesus, it's not a yokeless existence. It still requires work. It requires obedience. Rest in Jesus isn't a life of ease and luxury. We don't just simply kick back, Jesus loves me, I'm forgiven, do whatever I want. There's still a yoke, but it's a yoke that is light. In other words, Jesus doesn't promise escape from reality. He gives us the tools so that this life might be more easily dealt with. There's still a yoke, but the yoke is far lighter. But what exactly is this yoke that Jesus offers? Verse 29 shows us that it's tied in some way to his teachings because it adds, and learn from me, verse 29. It's not the heavy yoke of the scribes and the Pharisees who love to heap the law and the teachings all over these people, making them feel all of their sin and guilt and shame. Rather, it is Jesus calling us to gospel-fueled obedience. We do not obey Jesus because by doing so we will be granted his love. We obey because he already loves us and out of the overflow of his love and forgiveness we then obey him. This is Christ's yoke. When we use Jesus' teaching as a means of trying to earn his love, obedience is a crushing burden. But when we seek to obey Jesus and his teaching in response to his love for us, his teaching leads us to a pathway of blessing. Jesus transforms obedience. And he, yes, it's a burden. Yes, it requires work. But he transforms it into a, from a burden that crushes us to something that can be lifted by the grace and power of the Spirit. His burden is light. We see this dynamic with parents and kids. Anyone who has children here, you know in your heart of hearts that you love that child unconditionally, that you would do anything for them, that if you thought someone was going to hurt your child, you would hurt that person to protect your child. You love them unconditionally. Yet both we and they are blessed when they do actually obey. Parents, nod with me. When your kids obey, it is a blessing to you. You will love them no matter what, but it sure is nice when they're... Yes, Mom. Yes, Dad. Oh, yes. Beth Carnes. Oh, yes. I saw that. <laughs> Yet both we and they are blessed through this obedience. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children don't obey their parents in order to earn their love. They already have it. They obey them because it is both right and through that obedience it will come with a blessing. Psalm 19 says it this way describing the commandments of God. Notice how the law of God not is not an onerous thing, it's a good thing. The law of the Lord is perfect. Obedience is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Obedience is good. Living in right relationship with God is good. It is a place of goodness and blessing and rest for our souls. For instance, each of us know what it feels like to labor with a guilty conscience. Have you ever labored with a guilty conscience? I know I've done wrong. 
Have you noticed the freedom and the rest that comes when you confess that sin to God and to the person you've sinned against? Yes, it's work. There is a yoke that you must bear. But the moment that you confess, the moment that you receive God's forgiveness and the forgiveness from that other person, there's freedom there. The burden is immediately lifted. There's reconciliation in the relationship. And you are loved and forgiven by God and the other person. There's freedom in obedience. There's rest in obedience. Rest is living with a clear conscience before Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. It's a gentle and a lowly life, but it's a life of true and lasting rest. It's a yoke that's easy. It is a burden that is light. Jesus says, come to him, all of you, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If that's you, come. He will give you rest. All that he asks is that you would humble yourself before him like a child and acknowledge that he alone is God and that you are not. And in so doing, as you turn to him in obedience, you will find rest for your souls through a right relationship with him. Come to Jesus in humility. Take off the yoke of sin and shame and guilt and pride. Set it down and take on the yoke of love and obedience to God. It is a yoke that you must carry. It is a burden to take up your cross. It's, there's nothing that will be harder in this life, but is the only place where you will find true and lasting rest for your souls. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that on our helplessness and in our hopelessness, you sent Jesus Christ to take our yoke of pride, our sin, our shame, and our guilt, to take these upon himself and to take them to the cross to pay for each and every one of them so that we might exchange the yoke of our sin and receive in, in its place the yoke of Christ, one of love, rest, and obedience. Father, may we as your people humbly embrace Christ and receive the hope that he offers. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.